Today, I want to uh, talk a little bit with us about um, the very personal nature of the gospel. We're talking about the invested life. And today, I really want to uh, bring an illustration from Scripture about the invested life as it shows up in a key character's story. Now, I'm really into the word story because each of us has a story and each of us has the privilege to be a part of somebody else's story, and we're all collectively part of God's big story for all of humanity. Uh, but I want to look at five insights from Acts chapter 9, and then out of that, discuss five practices, which is when you take a value or an insight and you put it into action. So five practices that really kind of maybe translate better into your world and context. So Acts chapter 9 is actually the story of a guy named Saul, which changes his name later to Paul. Now, probably everyone here has heard of this iconic Christian figure, Paul, who wrote a significant amount of our New Testament scriptures that we have in our hands or on your digital device. And he was, uh, he is set up as the prototype of a person that received God's grace, was transformed by it, and then used unbelievably by God to reach others. But he wasn't always that way. He wasn't always that way. In fact, we're going to go back to the days when he was known as Saul, the persecutor. And I want you to see what happens in his story and then I, I just want us to talk about some of the things that we can learn as we peek at his journey of transformation. So in Acts chapter 9, what's happened is that a great persecution has broken out against the early church, the followers of Jesus, not long after his death. Now, Jesus had said to them in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the disciples didn't do that. They kind of hunkered down and hid, duck and cover. Like, don't lift your head up too high because you might get it shot off. I mean, they did not want to get out into the public sphere as a follower of Jesus. They were scared. And, and it makes sense because he uses that word, you will be my witnesses in all these places. The word witness in scripture is the original word martyrio. What word do you think we get from martyrio? Martyr, right. And you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the earth. Now, a martyr is not someone who just dies for their faith. That's not what martyr means. Martyr is not a person who dies for their faith. A martyr is someone who will cling to what they know is true and not deny it even if you threaten to kill them. A martyr is one who says, I know what I have seen, I know what I've experienced, I know how it's changed me and impacted me, and nothing you can do to me will change my story. Yesterday, I stood in front of the General Grant tree with about nine other people and we had an incredible experience. I've got photographs to prove it. And you might say, well, you're not in any of the photographs. 
You can't prove you were there. I can bring eyewitness testimony. Maybe they're paid off. You can even bring it to the point of saying, look, if you don't deny that you stood in front of the General Grant tree, you're done. We're putting you in jail. We're whipping you. We're killing you. What can I say? Honestly, honestly, what can I say? Do what you must to me, but I can't deny what I experienced. This is the word martyrio. When Jesus said, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, he's basically just saying this. Go out and share with the world what you have seen, what you have heard, and what you have experienced. And don't be afraid, even if they kill you. All right, so great persecution breaks out on the church, and what happens to the church? They actually scatter and run for the hills. Where do they run? Uh, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So it actually took persecution to move the church into the missional sphere that God wanted it to be. Let me say that again. The church in a natural state is more likely to come together and build walls around and be protective. God uses pressure, tension, opposition, persecution to move us into the agenda he had for us all along. Don't be afraid of of facing persecution or facing opposition to your faith. It actually means you've just stepped deeper into the very purposes God has for you. Now, that opposition and persecution was led by a guy, a religious leader named Saul. He was standing there giving approval when Stephen was stoned. Now, I'm from Colorado. The word stone means something different there now. But when he was stoned, like with rocks, you know, not with doobies, not throwing, you know, pot at him, but like rocks at him, he dies, and Saul's standing there giving approval to it, and Saul is just going after the church, hunting them down. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts 9. Listen as I read along. Acts 9.1, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any believers there who belonged to the way, that's what they were known then, the way, I like that, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on this road to Damascus to hunt down followers of Jesus when this happens. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, an audible voice, we'll find out because others heard it too, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless because they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. So they led him, literally they led him by the hand. This great, powerful religious leader hunting down the church is now blind and being led by the hand into Damascus. 
for three days, he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. Now, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to Ananias in a, in a vision, saying his name, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. That's pretty specific instructions. Go to the house of Judas, not that other Judas, the one on Straight Street. Go to that one. And there seek for a man from Tarsus, not the other guy named Saul, but the guy from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias <laughs> replies, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Saul's purpose went ahead. He hadn't even gotten to Damascus and word had spread among the believers, Saul is on the way. Ananias knew about it already. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized after taking some food, he re regained his strength, and Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Five insights I just want to run over with you real fast about this idea of Saul's journey and Ananias' role in it as we think about the very personal nature of the gospel. First off, the gospel is best conveyed through relationship. The gospel is best conveyed life to life. Now, there are many stories of people who have come to faith without anyone else being involved. They may have read the Bible. They may have had a dream or a vision about Jesus. They may have had some revelation through nature and then come to find out that it was Christ, the creator, uh, that was being revealed through nature. However, I want to ask you this question. On your journey of faith, how many of you have somebody in your life personally, personally, who was a part of your journey to know Jesus. Just raise your hand if you have a personal. Okay, that's almost everybody here. That is amazing. The gospel is best conveyed life to life. God did not have to use Ananias at all. Jesus had already spoken to Saul on an audible voice. Why Ananias? I mean, honestly, why, what is the role of Ananias in this whole thing when Jesus has already spoken audibly to Saul? He could have just carried on with the instructions and told Saul exactly what he needed to do, but he didn't do that. He chose to bring Ananias into it. Now, how many of you are studying anything around neurology or uh, neuroscience or, or any, kind of, any kind of things that deals with the brain? Anybody studying brain? You are? Yep. Yep. A few brain 
people here? Good? Okay, remember this, in the brain are a bunch of cells and those neurons that communicate from one to the other, right? But between each neuron, what is there? Do you remember? A synapse, it's called the synaptic gap. And it's a space, literally a physical space between two neurons, a gap, measurable space that your thought travels across. Some still unknowable impulse that moves from cell to cell, neuron to neuron, across a gap. Here's what I've come to believe. The gospel crosses a kingdom synapse. There's a gap between a life and a life. And I believe that those two have to be in proximity to each other for the gospel message to cross the gap. All of the stuff that goes into putting on a camp like this, all of this is massive infrastructure. Can you imagine what it takes to run Hume Lake? There's like 100 people employed here year-round. And yet, yesterday, sitting out in front of the human beanery, or whatever that's called, what is it, it's the human, it's the human beans? Is it plural? Good. So sitting out in front, what was happening? Conversations. People sitting face to face, forming a kingdom synapse from one life to another. And I believe in a very personal way, that's how God intends for the gospel to be transferred from life to life to life to life across the synaptic gap of the kingdom. Uh, As I travel around the world, I listen to stories and I hear people convey what we're talking about that in the midst of their journey, they found themselves in a place of need, confusion, searching, longing, maybe even undefinable situation. And somebody came along that God intended to come next to them. How many of you have had a person um, get close enough to you to accept you as you are and show you who Jesus is? Is that part of your story? It's part of mine. I'm so glad for authentic communities of faith where the gospel message in the kingdom can cross from life to life to life. The second thing I want you to see is that Ananias feared reaching out. So the gospel's personal, but it also comes with risk and it's costly. Ananias had to overcome the fear that he was feeling. So look again there at what Ananias has to say about the idea of going and talking with Saul. Lord, Ananias answered, verse 13, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And you're sending me? Why? There's a reason. But Ananias had a reason to be fearful as well. Uh, Just keep your finger there in Acts chapter 9 and turn over to 1 Timothy 1. This is where Paul gives a little window into what he was like and how the Lord changed his heart. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. This is Saul now 
known as Paul writing about his spiritual journey. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord has poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Saul was a bad dude. Saul was busting people left and right. And taking them back to Jerusalem was not so they could be at a spa. They were going back to be in jail and probably prosecuted and maybe even put to death for their blasphemy. That's who Ananias was sent to reach. Here's the difference. Ananias was looking at who Saul was at that moment. Ananias only saw what people knew about Saul to that line in the, in, the, in the journey. Everything Ananias knew about Saul was looking back. Everything God saw was Saul looking forward. The Lord was able to see where he was taking Saul and the impact he was going to have in the world for his name. Ananias could not see that. And he was scared, rightfully so. But as you come near people who are resistant to the message of Christ, don't stop loving and accepting them. Don't stop demonstrating the values of the kingdom to them. Don't stop sharing the, the work of Christ in your own life. Maybe you change your approach. Maybe you're not so, you know, uh, um, forward in the presentation of the gospel, but you're forward in the presentation of being a follower of Jesus because that's who you are. Here's the difference. You're only seeing them to this line right now and who they have been. Almost every follower of Christ that's come out of a Muslim background that I know personally were living a nominal Islamic life until they met a follower of Jesus typically seven followers of Jesus before they would even seriously consider it. And before they said yes to following Jesus, they actually got more conservative in their Islam. They came to the conclusion, the only reason Islam's not working for me is because I'm not really devoted to it. So I feel convicted that this person's a follower of Jesus and they're living this abundant life. I'm not living an abundant life, but I'm also a pretty pathetic Muslim. So I'm going to become more devout in my Islam. Well, do you think that encourages me to keep going in faith and sharing the gospel? Or do I see them become more devout in their Islam and say they're not interested in Jesus? The truth is they had to go through a major resistance to Jesus to confirm that their faith in Islam wasn't going to do it for them. If I had given up at that line, maybe they would not know Jesus. 
If somebody else had given up at that line, maybe they wouldn't know Jesus. God sees the future of a person that you and I cannot see. No matter how anxious we feel or fearful we feel, follow the prompting of the Spirit as you seek to come near to them and express the gospel in personal ways. The third thing I want you to see is that God was preparing Saul already. Ananias did not need to be afraid because God was preparing Saul already, right? I mean, think, look back in Acts 9. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless in verse 7. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. And when the Lord talks about going to, to, to see Saul, he says to Ananias in verse 11, go to the man in, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. He is ready for you. I've already been working on his heart. I've already brought him to a place of humility and blinded him so that he might be open to, to the message you're going to bring. God had humbled him. Christ had revealed himself to Saul and had prepared him for Ananias' visit. Now, I want you to keep your finger there and go back to 1 Timothy 1 one more time. This is the part that to me is so ground shifting. Listen for the repeated phrase, all right, in these two verses. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now listen to this verse, 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience. What's the repeated phrase? Shown mercy. Saul says in his journey, he was shown mercy. How? How was he shown mercy? You think that, I, I grew up thinking he was shown mercy by God for not destroying him. I don't believe that anymore. Think about the opportunity that Ananias had. Ananias is a follower of Jesus in a culture that was eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here is Saul killing, hunting down people that he loves, part of his tribe. He's going to go see Saul in a completely vulnerable state. Saul is blind. Saul is unprotected. Saul has no way to defend himself as a blinded person from whatever Ananias is going to do. Do you see the opportunity that Ananias had? Take out the dude that's killing Christians. Exact revenge on the Saul that is doing this to the people that I love, that's persecuting the Jesus that I follow. When Ananias comes in and he places his hands on Saul, he says two words, brother Saul. 
Now, I don't know what you know about the culture of that day, but there is no more beautiful picture of the mercy of God being communicated to Saul than Ananias walking in, not with a knife to end his life, but walking in with a hand to put on him and say, brother, where did Saul experience the mercy of Christ, removing the punishment that Saul rightfully deserved? How did he taste of the mercy of Christ? It was through the hand of Ananias. Now, why is that relevant? Because I am convinced of this. I am convinced of this, that people need to experience the attributes of Christ through human form before they can understand the attributes of Christ in a spiritual relationship. People need to experience unconditional love through you. They need to experience kindness, gentleness, and patience through you. They need to taste and see forgiveness from you. They need to wound you and you show them mercy, not revenge. I am convinced that in people's discovery of who Christ is, that they experience the divine attributes of Jesus Christ through the body of Christ on earth, the church. And when they experience those things, those divine qualities, they can then comprehend what it must feel like to experience that same thing from a God they can't see. That's what Ananias did when he showed up. He was scared, but God had prepared Saul to receive mercy through the hand of Ananias. Fourth, God made Saul a new creation. I'm not gonna linger on this one because I think it's pretty obvious. God made Saul into a new creation. Look at verse 15 in Acts 9. The Lord says to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, all those people that the Jewish people and believers won't go touch. You know, Gentile was just a word that meant not Jew. There were Jews and there were not Jews. And if you were a Jew, you didn't hang out with the not Jews. Saul is God's chosen instrument to bring this message to the not Jews carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Here's the simple point I want you to remember about this. Maybe, maybe like Ananias, there's a Saul in your life. Maybe you'll have the chance to touch hundreds of lives for Jesus and, and will be ground shifting for people that don't know Christ. Maybe that's you. However, maybe you're more like Ananias. Maybe you touch one life. Maybe you invest in one person who then goes out and becomes a world changer. The scope of your ministry impact is not in your hands. But the person that you're hanging out with and being a part of their journey of faith may actually be the person that takes the message of Jesus back to a city that has no follower of Jesus at all. 
If the internationals that are here in this space, I just want to say a, a brief word to you. I am so glad you're here. I am so moved by how many internationals are in this gathering. Whether you come from Latin America or East Asia or, or Eastern Europe or, or other parts of the world, you are so welcome here. I love that you have a, an invitation and you, accept, you said yes to the invitation. The, the thing that really blows my mind is the potential impact that you have as well. If you plan to go back to a culture of origin or to a city where you grew up, and, and having been a part of this experience of following Jesus, to take that back with you and to be a part of influencing many people where you're from originally. Don't, don't be confused that maybe you'll influence many, but maybe you'll influence one who then turns around and touches the world. Last point I want to make in this Acts 9 is that Ananias is then basically forgotten in Paul's story. Ananias is basically forgotten in Paul's story. Um, as Paul's talking, well, so after this in Acts 9, it doesn't say that Saul spent several days with Ananias. No, he went and spent time with the disciples in Damascus, and then he went on to Jerusalem and hang out, hung out with them there, and then he spent a year with Barnabas, hanging out with him. He was invested in by a lot of people, but Ananias was only a very, very brief part of his spiritual journey. And I love this about the, the way that Paul describes his story in 1 Timothy 1. So actually, I'm going back there one more time. Sorry. In 1 Timothy 1, he's telling this whole story, and it's, it's not lost on me that Ananias is not mentioned. He doesn't say a word about Ananias as he's talking about being a, a persecutor and a violent man, but he was shown mercy. Why didn't he give credit to Ananias for being the instrument of mercy? The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about this whole deal about Christ came for sinners to display his unlimited patience as an example. And then it kind of swells to this last verse, verse 17, where Paul just gives praise and glory and honor. Listen for Ananias' name in this, all right? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Where's Ananias? He ain't in that because Paul understands that Ananias was a vessel, an instrument of change in his life, and when mercy touched him through the hand of Ananias, the scales of spiritual blindness fell off, and, and Saul didn't just look at Ananias. When the scales fell off as a result of Ananias' touch of mercy, Saul perceived and saw Christ. All credit, all glory, all honor go to Jesus, not to Ananias. Praise God for that. Can you be content with this thought that you will never, ever, ever know the impact you have in this world for Christ? That things will happen as a result of your investing in others that will go on to change other people's lives and you'll never know anything about it this side of heaven. You'll never get credit for it. You'll never get recognition. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I hope to be a part of a spiritual movement 
in our world, in this generation. I think we're at a pivotal time in this whole thing called the church. I want to be a part of that in some small way. And when it's written about in the future, I don't want to have anything that I'm associated with mentioned in that, in that record. All credit, glory, honor be to Jesus. As you're investing in others, do it with that sense of humility. Because I think that's what brings Christ into people's vision. Not that they're seeing you, how cool you are, how winsome you are, how holy you are, how obedient you are, how loving you are, how gentle you are, how merciful you are. That's just a gap that's crossed over for them to see Jesus through you. Well, we're kind of at the end of our uh, time this morning. Am I right on that, Neil? Is that about, let's wrap up. So, go ahead. Well, all right. Well, I'm going to show you this little video clip because I want to show you how this plays out in practices in real time. All right. So uh, let's watch this. And this is a. This was done for our um, the church that I go to on Saturday night, which is called Mission Hills Church, and it's a rather large gathering of believers. But we were going through the art of neighboring together and looking for examples of where that was already going on. So for eight years. I've been living on this street, and they said, let's just capture some of that story. So this is the story of living on Daytura Circle, where, uh, where my family lives. So we moved on to the street seven years ago, and I think the first thing I had to realize was that the relationship had already started, and we were moving into something that was already going on. Um, so our hope was just to come in meet everybody on the street. After we began to meet people, we realized that they each had a story and just wanted to ask them questions, not to freak them out or to scare them, but just to find out about their, the story of their lives and in the context of hearing the story of their life, discover some little practical ways to pray for them. I think in the past, uh, I saw it as my task to uh, share the love of Jesus and evangelism with all my friends and neighbors and realized that eventually people kind of thought like, that they were a project. Here, we just try to love them well. And loving them well is as simple as just extending normal, casual friendship. And here's the cool thing. So over time, by just being trusted as a friend, when tragedy hit or when hardship landed, they felt like they had someone to turn to at that time. I think so much of this whole idea of loving your neighbor well is just establishing a connection where when somebody really needs someone to talk to at a more meaningful level, they have a friend they can talk to. One of our neighbors talked about growing up Jehovah's Witness and just how it didn't seem to fit with what she felt like was her worldview. Uh, over time, she came to Christ and uh, she had yes to follow Jesus. Uh, and so she asked to be baptized. So we went out to Chatfield Reservoir. Her family, who was still part of Jehovah's Witness religion, were there. And when I look back from the water at the shore, the 30 people that were there, except for her family, were all neighbors that lived on the street. So as you're investing in people, how do you keep them from feeling like a project, like you're only interested in them if, if they say yes to Jesus? I just want to give you five practices that we're trying to live out on our street. And I hope this is really gets down to a very, very practical level. First off, you don't really influence anybody you've never met. 
So there's got to be an introduction, right? And when you think about where you live, I just want you to think about uh, the opportunity that can't be missed. You may leave your apartment, your home, your dorm, wherever you live on campus or wherever you live, and go somewhere else to do ministry. But can I just encourage you to think about what love your neighbor really actually means? That no matter who else is your neighbor out there, it ought to at least include the people that live right around you. Why? You can't escape them. They can't escape you. There may not be anybody that you have more of an opportunity to bump into casually than the people that you. With that thought in mind, I just want to encourage you to make it a goal of yours. Know everyone that lives on your street, however you would define your street. Maybe your street is your apartment stairwell. And, and there's, you know, you live on the third floor, but there's the stairwell that goes up, and there's four apartments on each level, and it goes up five floors. That's 20 apart- apartments. Picture that as a vertical street. Can you actually just imagine making it a goal to meet everyone on your vertical street? Or, or if you live in a, some other kind of a complex, just define who, who constitutes your physical neighbors and see if there's an opportunity for you to meet them. And, it, and when you meet them, then begin step two, exploring their story. Now, this isn't where you freak them out and ask a million questions at the same conversation. People get a little bit sketchy if you start getting into personal questions in the first conversation. If you live near them, you're going to see them again. Don't worry about it. Ask them about, why'd you come here? Are you from here? Why'd you choose this school? What are you studying? All those very basic questions. But when you're done with that conversation, think to yourself, what's the next question to ask? What's the next question to ask when I see them again? Hey, you said that you moved across country from West Virginia. How's that been for you? You doing okay with that? Are you missing home? What's going on? That gets into a level of understanding how they're feeling about having gone across the country to college. Hey, you said you're a major in this, but you said you just changed your major. What was the motivation behind changing? I mean, what was it that drove you to make that change? I mean, that's a question you can ask anybody because everybody's changed their major. I mean, you can, that's, a, that's a fair game question right there. Just begin to know their story. And here's what's cool about hearing people's story is you discover very specific ways to pray for them. And when you pray for them, whether they know it or not that you're praying, you have just entered their spiritual journey. You are seeking God's favor for them on their behalf, whether they know you're praying or not. Now, there are times with my neighbors where in hearing their story, they've revealed something in the moment that was really moving, like Don down the street, who I was talking to the other day. Don doesn't know Jesus from like, you know, John Lennon. John, he's got no clue. I mean, he's, he doesn't have any idea who Jesus is. But Don just lost a job with a company he's been with for 25 years. He is wall-eyed, pissed off. This is my neighbor, Don. And he's venting to me as if I was the CEO of the company that fired him, right? He is downloading to me everything he wished he could have said to his boss, right? At the end of it, I didn't know what to do except to say, Don, wow, thank you for telling me that. You are so um, angry about this, and for good reason. You've been treated really unfairly. 
And I just want to know if it's okay if I pray for you. And Don actually physically took a step back and said, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's like, yeah. Now, Don knows that I, you know, I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to, you know, be a Christian. He knows that. So maybe that's why he said, okay, but he figured I knew what I was doing. So he let me pray for him. I've known Don for seven years, seven years. All we've talked about is Colorado Avalanche hockey, working out at fitness club, and his job traveling around training people on how to use voicemail. That's all we've known of each other until he lost his job. Then he felt the freedom to share. Hearing story, praying for them, opens the door to enter their spiritual journey. Fourth, look for a way to serve them. So, growing up in church, when a woman got pregnant, the Sunday school class would organize a rotation of meals and, you know, provide like three weeks of meals for the family after they had the baby because the mom doesn't want to cook anything. And some people live far away from their family of origin. And that's just kind of normal practice in this church thing that we do. Well, Janet on our street grew up Lutheran. And she began as a teenager to have dreams and visions. She took the dreams and visions to her pastor. Now, this isn't a commentary on Lutheranism. This could have happened in any denomination. But the pastor told her her dreams and visions were from Satan and that God didn't speak to people through dreams and visions. As a teenager, she left the church and started seeking out interpretation of her dreams and visions from spiritual mediums, from tarot card readers, from crystal balls, all these different kind of people. If the church says they're not from God, then they must be somewhere else. It wasn't until she was a part of our street that she heard anybody say to her, Janet, God speaks to people through dreams and visions. And let me show you in scripture where. Meaningful conversation. Now, Janet got pregnant and had never been a part of a Sunday school class to make meals for her. So my wife, who grew up in the church, put together a schedule for the people that live on our street to provide meals for Janet. These aren't faraway strangers or people that Janet's never met. These are people that live right next door to Janet or all down the street. So for three weeks, Janet had meals after she had a baby because my wife said, I want to bless her in some practical way. Janet was so moved by that expression of love and care. Janet now owns responsibility for doing that for other neighbors. A simple expression of Christ's love, tangible serving with the love in the name of Jesus, leads to tremendous invitation for them to begin acting like Jesus even before they say yes to him in faith. Let me say that again. One doorway that people go through to get to faith in Jesus is through being served and then being invited to serve others. I was doing a soup kitchen in the train station in Brussels, Belgium, next to this guy named Terence. And Terence was a Cameroon asylum seeker. So he'd come to Brussels to escape kind of persecution in Cameroon. Here and he and I are together serving homeless people food in the main train station in Brussels. And I say to Terence, how did you come to be here doing this today? And he pointed at a Middle Eastern guy laying on a mattress in the corner of the train station. He said, this time last year, 
I was that guy. That was my squat. That was my spot in the train station. And, the, and Nino, the Bosnian guy that knows Jesus, kept coming and bringing me food. And finally he said, Terrence, why am I keep feeding you? Why don't you get off your mattress and come feed somebody else? And Terrence said, I did. I got up and started feeding others. He said, that's how I came to faith in Jesus. Okay, this is not craziness. This is normal today. That people are coming to faith in Christ through being included and belonging with followers of Jesus, the invitation to belong, and by being invited to serve and act like Jesus. Both are doorways to belief. It no longer is the case that you've got to convince somebody to believe and then invite them to belong and then teach them to behave like Jesus. It's not linear like that anymore. Overlap the circles. Some people come to faith in Jesus through believing. Some people come to believing through belonging by being included in the fellowship of Jesus' followers. Some people come to faith through the doorway of behaving, beginning to serve because they were served and it felt good. You think non-Christians don't feel good when they serve? Of course they do. Volunteerism is bigger in Europe than it is in America. Why? Because it feels good to serve. It feels good to be helpful to someone else. That is a doorway that people come to know Jesus if you'll serve them. And the last thing is, be ready to share your story when they ask. Be ready to share your story when they ask. Meet them, hear their story, pray for them, express God's love through serving them in a practical way, and be ready to tell your story when they ask. If you are pursuing them as a friend, a genuine friend, loving and accepting them, if you are praying for them, if you are serving for them, I can promise you they're going to ask, why are you so different? Why are you treating me this way? Be ready to share your story when asked. Now, I say when asked because in our world today, tolerance has been elevated to the highest virtue. And if you start a friendship with, tell me what you believe, because I'm getting ready to try to convince you it's wrong and that you should believe what I believe, you have just alienated that person. Are you in that world? Do you live in that world? That if you start with belief, most people will say, uh, that doesn't feel very good. Who are you to tell me what to believe? Now, when Jesus prompts you to do it and somebody's ready for it, praise God. I'm not opposed to cold evangelism. I mean, Ananias and, and Saul were a little bit like that, right? But the truth is, is that in our culture today, getting people to be open to the gospel is a long road of friendship. Loving them, praying for them, serving them, and being ready to share when they ask. I just wanted to offer that. I don't know if that's a helpful thing. I've talked about that at meals for, with several of you, and um, just wanted to provide a, a simple pathway for you to look at how to uh, be involved in the very personal nature of communicating the gospel. Okay, let's pray together. We'll be done, and we'll come back to this tonight and pick up this theme with another story. Lord God, thank you for um, the life-changing impact of people that you've brought into each of our lives and for the privilege of being able to invest in other people's lives as well. I pray, God, that you would um, bring to mind, even now, people that you have in our world that you desire for us to invest more deeply in.
and that we would overcome the anxiety and look for ways to hear their story, pray for them, serve them, and be ready to share with them. Thank you, in Jesus' name.